I'm Sarah Myerskoff and this is the Insurance Brokers Podcast where we're talking to the personalities and the businesses that sit behind our industry. If you like what you hear, please hit subscribe on your chosen podcast streaming platform. Hello guys, thank you so much for joining me on uh, the first ever, so touch wood that the tech works, Insurance Brokers Podcast that is live. So we've never done this before. We're doing it because it is our hundredth episode, which means I've done a hundred interviews, which felt like it needed a a thing that was making it a bit different. So I'm really glad to have the three of you here. Um, I'm really glad to have people already joining in the audience and and hopefully uh, you'll be sending some questions in. Before I talk about how you send questions in, before I tell you what wonderful topics we're going to speak about today, um, I'm really grateful to you, Sam and Pete and Steve, for joining me. I just, I'm excited to see how this goes. So I don't know if you guys want to give a little uh, introduction of yourself, not that it will be needed because I'm sure everybody knows who you are, but Steve, do you want to start? Yeah, thanks. And Sarah, congratulations on the 100th episode. That's a great, great achievement. I'm Steve White. I'm Beaver's chief exec. I'm one of the few people of my generation who positively chose insurance as a career. My father was a Norwich Union inspector when I was a lad, and I think I was always cut out to do this. I've been at Beaver since 2004. I've been chief exec for the last 10 years. Brilliant. Um, and uh, Beaver have just launched their own podcast, I know, because I'm hosting it. So if you haven't listened to Beaver Pod, you should. Uh, so um, exciting stuff. Uh, Pete, tell me a little bit about you that, that nobody already knows. Oh, my God. OK, so uh, <laughs> something that nobody knows. I'm not, I'm not going there yet. No, far like... too early. So, uh, I'm, uh, I'm Peter Blong. I'm the exec chair for Howden UK and Ireland. So I was the, uh, um, the CEO of Aston Lark. Um, I founded Aston Lark by the merging Aston Scott and Lark back in 2017. Um, I think we've done 55, 56 acquisitions since then, and then sold the business to Howden, and now now leading the M&A drive for Howden. Um, so um, absolutely, unlike Steve, completely not supposed to be in insurance. My mum still hasn't forgiven me for not being a doctor, but she'll get over it. <laughs> Brilliant. Sam, you've just got back from Australia. So tell us about that and about yourself and how the jet lag is. Uh, I, I was going to say, there. yeah, the jet lag may kick in at a certain point. So I'm going to use that as an excuse if I make no sense or embarrass Pete or Steve in some way that I have yet to be discovered. When you said excited, I didn't know if it was excited or nervous. But um, yeah, I'm Sam White. I'm the founder <laughs> and CEO of Stellar Insurance. Um, which launched in Australia uh, in 2020 and launched in the UK in November of this year. So super excited to be on your 100th episode. Um, that is some achievement. I know I, I have my own podcast, so I know keeping up the energy and getting the right people in. The it human be... business podcast. You should listen to that people as well. Absolutely. You'll be able to hear all of Peter's uh, dirty laundry and closet stories. <laughs> <laughs> and we can we can we can elaborate on that. So, what we thought about when we were when we were planning the hundredth episode is to do something a little bit different, topical and interesting. So, where we got with it, and I've had uh, conversations with you guys about this as well, uh, and I stole the uh, the lines from you, Sam. I wanted to talk about the human element of our industry, and what I mean by that are how the human element, I suppose, is how the human element has changed over the last five years. So 
Sam, you talk a lot about um, energy and bringing different energies to the insurance industry. Uh, I've heard you speak on, on a number of occasions, uh, and I think it's really interesting. Uh, obviously, Pete and Steve, you guys um, hear a lot, see a lot, manage a lot, and must have seen the changes over the last five years happening. So I don't want to pinpoint this as being like a, a, a male-female debate. I just want to know what you think about the different people, the different energies and how how things have moved over the last five years. I think, Sam, do you want to start, given sure. that you just were telling us about some incredible conversations you have you had at Forbes Australia, the different type of energies and people that were there and the dif different type of things that they've overcome. So do you want to kick us off sure. and then Steve and uh, Pete and me will just jump in when we need. Uh, yeah, no, I just got back from the Forbes Women's Summit, which was absolutely spectacular. I honestly, it was the best event I've ever been to. There was 2,000 female entrepreneurs in the room. Um, I, interestingly, a lot of the speakers I didn't, I hadn't heard of because they were very Australian-centric, but some incredible women. I was saying the captain of the Afghanistan football team, female that had escaped on the last plane um a lady called christine holgate that if you guys haven't checked her out you should check her out and, and interesting christine for me was the epitome of what i think leadership needs to look like and i talk a lot about um recently i've, I've kind of gone off the male female debate because i actually don't think it is about men or women i i think it's about the values that we choose to hold up high in the industry as values that everybody should um, aim for. And, you know, when, when I talk about feminine and masculine energy, I'm talking about left and, and right brain. And left brain is very analytical, KPI driven, uh, process, and, and it's generally considered to be quite masculine. And right brain is creative, collaboration, empathy, and that's generally considered to be quite feminine and I think when I look at the financial services industry as a whole we have a massive over index in left brain thinking and and it permeates the whole of the industry and I think it's to our detriment in terms of attracting talent um, innovating thinking about you know really moving the business forward and that's not to say that there isn't any innovation of course there's lots of innovation there's lots of good people in the industry but I think if we can start to tackle behaviours and um, sort of aspirational qualities in the industry and look at it through a different lens, I, I think we'll, we will make far more progress than the progress that we're, we're currently making. And I, you know, I know that I'm on here with, with men that are actually in touch with their right brain feminine energy so i'm i'm, I'm assuming that they're <laughs> going to be started sam don't you? <laughs> <laughs> but funny enough sam, as, as you were thinking as you were talking i was thinking about the um yeah, tradition i mean mergers and acquisitions is what i what is what i know um and over the course of the last five years you know lots of people um think that m a is all about numbers and you know ebitda multiples and debt levels and so on. and of course yeah all right those things you kind of got to know your way around them but fundamentally it's it's so much about people about understanding what the vendors really really want trying to actually understand what they want what their people want and then work out how they're going to fit with us and are they going to fit 
And actually that, you know, I, I, I say to people that you know, my job is all about psychology these days. It's about nothing more than psychology, understanding the needs and wants and hopes and dreams of people that we buy and people that exist in the business at the moment and trying to make it all about look, how can we jointly move towards a better future not just and, and then try not to think about all of the boring left brain stuff because yeah the right brain stuff is just a so much more interesting and b it's what really counts because you know as we all know you know it's not about money it really is i know it's easy to say that but it really is not about money you know people work for organizations that they want to work for and and that they enjoy being part of and yet you know, our job as leaders i just think has changed enormously over the last few years and it's all about creating an environment where people want to work for us yeah you know, the whole world has gone from being you know employers had the power 10 years ago i'd say employees have the power now and that's a that's a much much nicer place to be when I look at why Pete's successful, it's nothing to do with his left brain qualities. But if they talk about Pete in a magazine or an article, they'll talk about the numbers. They'll talk about the size of the business and how yeah. successful it's been. And, and actually, I know Pete. I, I spent a lot of time with him when we went on the Mont Blanc trek. It's his human qualities. It's his right brain that makes him successful in business. And this is kind of where I go. If we can really tap into that and encourage it, not just women are better at this and actually women will naturally do better in the industry if we start to acknowledge those qualities more but if we encourage it in men i think we'll we'll be in a better position and sorry uh, steve i think the i think the left brain right brain argument is a really really interesting one uh, I've, I've talked to a number of in, uh, larger employers who have traditionally gone down the graduate route and they're starting to realize that Diversity isn't about what you look like, it's internally, as you say, Sam, it's that how the, how the brain works. And I, and I think these employers are starting to realise that if, if you simply take on graduates, they may look different, but actually they've come from a very similar backgrounds, studied fairly similar subjects at fairly similar universities. Their thinking is going to be very similar. And what you want from diversity is, is diversity of thought, diversity of background, application, you're more likely to get that if you go down the apprenticeship route. So I think that, I think that is um, something that has definitely changed over the last five years. And Pete's point around culture, culture is hugely important now. Uh, what employers are saying to, saying to us is uh, it's not just what's the starting salary, what's, what's the culture of the firm like? What's it like to be there? Are they, are they, a, are they a nice firm to work for? And that's really, really uh, um, a difference. And that then brings us on to a, a difficult point for employers as to how do you how do you build a culture when your workforce isn't in the office twenty you know five days five days a week how do you how do you embed culture into new employees who perhaps won't work with all their colleagues for months and months and months I mean sad Pete you, you, yeah. you must have that challenge okay, talk to us a little bit how you get that to work it's amazing I mean, that we, we're buying businesses and we've bought businesses over the last few years that have got all sorts of different working patterns now. And we, you know, we recently bought a business where the working pattern that's been established post-pandemic is that nobody works in the office Monday through Thursday. Everyone's in the office on a Friday. Um, yeah, so, and, and that really works for them. Um, they have a, it's almost like, you know, every Friday is kind of a, you know, not a celebration day, but everyone's in collaborating, you know, chatting, getting to know each other. There's a social aspect to it as well. And then, but their work is fundamentally remote. Now, 
that might be quite extreme for some organisations. Um, and you know, I I personally find I, I like having a balance of having a local office that I can go to interact with people. You know, I come to our Colchester office typically, um, where if I'm not in London, and you know, my work is not really connected with what the guys in the Colchester office do. But it means there's a there's a social aspect to it that you get to actually you know. You, you get to show your face and you get to actually you know them to experience what we're what I'm doing and I get to find out what they're doing crucially and I just I, I really like the office environment but I think we've got to get better at making it more local to people and making it more accessible and just embedding flexibility without it being you know a forced flexibility because one of the things I have noticed is that with youngsters whether they're coming in at apprentice level or graduate level, those guys don't want to work at home all the time. They really don't. And it's not great for them. You know, I, I, I have experience of my son who's now 23. Um, you know, his first year of work after leaving um, university was pretty much in his bedroom. Yeah, and that's not healthy for a 21 year old. It's just not. Yeah. One of the things that we're talking about is hybrid working and flexibility. And that allows different types of people more um, <clears throat> Options. So that brings a wider uh, uh, network of people in to the employee aspect. Why the the insurance industry is synonymous with a certain age male uh, from a certain ethnicity in the UK, right? There's, I don't think I'm the first person to say that, and I don't think it's controversial that I'm saying it. But what we are talking about here is about. Um, different types of people, different types of brain. What is it? What is the fundamental thing that has happened in the last five years that started that shift? Open to whoever wants to jump first. I'll say the pandemic. I mean, the, you know, the pandemic is probably, has been the biggest seismic shaper of, of business culture. And I think it's really interesting. If you look at LinkedIn nowadays, LinkedIn has changed enormously over the last five years. You know, it used to be very sort of fact-based, but now LinkedIn is kind of, you know, it's, it's like a non-stop celebration of different companies celebrating success for their people, for their organisations, or for their, you know, the personal achievements of their staff, and that's that's become quite an important driver or, or demonstrator of a company's culture. You know, when you look at LinkedIn and you see, you know, lots of posts and lots of congratulatory messages from you know members of staff in your organisation, you think, isn't that great that people are watching and and realising what's going on elsewhere? And and that stuff just never happened pre-pandemic because yeah, the, that's critical. The isn't level it? Social of remote media working is critical. So much lower. Yeah, yeah. It's it. I, I think if we are that's working remotely, you've I... got to use it, haven't you? You've got to use your social media presence yeah. to be able to connect people back in because they're not in the office. Yeah. And and WhatsApp seems to have taken the place of. Um, certain other forms of internal communication as well. Not, not, not necessarily that the boss is wired into the WhatsApp group, but it seems all the rest of the staff tend to be. With my, with my left brain, I was chatting to a compliance guy the other day my, with my left brain hat on, and he was pulling his hair out of the, the extent of London market broking that now takes place on WhatsApp. And it's kind <laughs> of just, you know, it's, a, it's just horrific, horrific levels of broking are all on WhatsApp now. I find it really difficult to remember what conversation I've had on what medium uh, when you're going back to try and remind yourself of something. But but it, but it's all um, used in a professional sense, whereas 
five, ten years ago, it just wasn't. You wouldn't have dreamt of WhatsApping somebody or uh, instant messaging somebody, would you? It would have been the height of unprofessionalism. And now it's standard. It's a slight, it's a slight worry, though, Sarah, because it kind of, again, yeah, slight, slight left brain comment, but it's kind of, yeah, it's we are we are reducing insurance to to WhatsApp messages, and there's just an assumption that. The insurance will work and will be will be great and will actually you know solve the problems when the, when the problems happen and that's kind of that's a that's a massive assumption and I think the uh, it's yeah and it's a it's a it's a problem that we haven't quite managed to deal with yet actually how to communicate to customers in a way that they want to be communicated with yeah we still just inundate customers with utter nonsense you know the 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 renewal invites with the PDF documents with eighty pages that no one no one is ever going to read and that's how that's our standard mode of communication with customers which i just think is is appalling and and needs to change and is a a left brain uh uh driven uh phenomenon that that's kind of come up so i think that's what we're talking about how do we that the changes are happening we can see it what else needs to happen how do we how do we to how do we manage that balance because just to the point you just made the uh, the right brain um communication uh transparency um all of that stuff whatsapp is perfect for but there has to be a balance what, what, what do we do how do we take it from where we are now and what are the, the changes that are going to come in the next five years if i can jump in i mean i think the 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 big change will be that I think the regulator will expect us to deliver products that are going to work. So it's, it's kind of on us, whereas it used to be, oh, send out documentation. If there's a clause in there that client doesn't read, well, more for them. If it doesn't, if the if the product doesn't respond to them, well, hey, we sent them the clause. I don't think that's good enough nowadays. I think you know it's it's on us. We have to make sure the products are going to work. That's where you know, to my mind, you know, that's that's the right brain bit. We have to be talking to our customers, truly understand what they need, and then make sure we're doing our job so that actually when something does go wrong, they are looked after. That's that's kind of the whole point. So question for you on that point. Um, how do you make that stuff more than a tick box? Because I think that's the thing that the regulator fights with, with all the, the things that it's, that it's making it more than a tick box. How, yeah. how do we... How do we do that? And I think I know what the answer is or what you might say, Sam, uh, but go. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's, it, it is absolutely, it comes down to communication, which as an industry, we are not good with. Because we think we're communicating by giving all of this information. Like I had it in the document, it was all laid out. It's, you know, that clause is in there. But actually, if you were sat in your local pub chatting to somebody about the policy, what kind of communication would you have to have for them to truly understand what it is that you're giving them? And that's, for me, where we we just haven't even scratched the surface of what is possible. And when we, when we went to launch um, Stella in Australia, because we'd done a, a media partnership with Bauer, we had access to a panel of, I think it was about 60,000 women that we could do market research with before we brought the product out. And it was fascinating. Like, we, we always say just because we're women doesn't mean that we understand women, because obviously our target market is, is females. But we ask them and, and we, you know, we communicate with them. We talk with them and not at them. 
And I think that's a real subtle difference that the industry needs to understand is that that your your customers, it should be a two-way conversation. And in order to um, really truly understand whether they have understood you, that communication loop has to be circular. And, and, and that's the bit where I think if we spend more time sense-checking what our customers actually think they have versus what their we think they know that they have, I think we'll end up with a, a better product suite and we'll end up with a better reputation. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think there's probably also a, a role for the regulator in this because the regulator still believes that you should be inundating the customer with, with uh, information. Customers only have a certain capacity to absorb and understand information. Um, I think a lot of customers who deal through a trusted advisor would trust the advisor to make sure that the product meets their needs. Um, but unfortunately, our regulator seems, seems to think just pile on layer upon layer of information. Yeah. And then you get the, the, the key information, the important stuff, which you, which you have to bring to the customer's attention. Well, that, that's, that list is becoming greater and greater and greater. So, yeah, there's a, I think there's a, there's a role for the regulator. There's a role for us as insurance practitioners and probably also a role for, for customers as well. I just wanted to give an example because I'd love to know where you think of them. I mean, it's not insurance, but it is an example that I've come across very recently. And it is um, of somebody hiding behind the right brain stuff that we're talking about. So uh, all females involved in this uh, conversation. Um, so somebody I know called Joe went to view a property, the profit to rent, the, the, the property I want needs to have a garage. That's my core requirement. It needs to be allowed pets in a garage. Core requirement specified verbally several times. Um, the, the negotiations happened, contract signed, went to pick up the keys. Where's the garage key? The garage is not included. If you'd read your contract properly at clause five, yeah. it says it's not included. Now, yeah. this particular person has um, uh, various uh, uh, send needs. And the argument that I gave was, exactly what we're talking about you knew the core requirements and the response was prove it yeah how do you and that kind of thing is not you know that was an estate agent issue but it is something that you see in our industry how, how do you manage that when we're talking about regulation and and and, and treating the customer fairly and putting all of these things how do you manage that kind of circumstance you have to have a culture that actually that that just would not allow that behavior to happen because i mean that's just that's just wrong isn't it i mean it's a yeah, part, some of the stuff that you see going on in the on, in the price comparison world at the moment, yeah, as a response to the cost of living crisis, some of the insurers have produced these stripped back products that have no windscreen cover, for example. So you have an individual who is really hard up, really struggling, and is tempted into saving twenty pounds by not having windscreen cover, and then what happens? They have a windscreen claim, and they're seven hundred pounds in the hole. That they go into credit card debt to solve you know that's kind of, how is that how is that a great outcome and we're doing that in the name of cost of living crisis i think that's that's just shoddy and i think there is some there should be a sort of a moral overlay onto everything that we do and actually the the what i talk about with all of our staff all the time is the kind of that you treat every customer as if it was your mum you wouldn't sell your mum a product that wasn't going to work 
Well, you'd like to think you wouldn't, unless you. I was going to say, depends on your relationship <laughs> you know, with your you, mum. You, <laughs> but, but you would, you know, you wouldn't do it. You would, you'd, you'd make sure that the actual product was going to be fit for purpose. That's kind of it's a that's a, and I think insurance brokers generally, you know, I do think over the overwhelming majority work really hard to do that. But I think there are pressures on firms to actually make ends meet, and sometimes there are pressures put on them by customers. Actually, you know the whole world becomes so price sensitive that a customer drives the broker to deliver a lower price, deliver a lower price. And then the broker's thinking, right, well, okay, if I chop that out and chop that out, I can, I can, I can meet their needs. And that's kind of the Pete, they, wrong way around. Pete, there's still an, Pete, there's still an insurance agreed to have it chopped out, but that's the, yeah. the other part of the circle, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, yeah, and yeah, my argument, I mean, and of course it was easy. If you were one of those insurers, you could say to the regulator with a straight face, Oh, we're, we are responding oh, no. to a genuine customer need that right now customers need to save money. And the regulator might say, oh, that's a good thing. Well, I think that's a bad thing. There's a, there's a limit to what, to, you know, we, we yeah. should fundamentally be providing products that enable people to go about their lives without, without undue risk. Uh, one of the things that I find quite interesting, and I've got my mum hat on here, is, um, uh, Pete, when you were just talking about um, the cost of living, and I am concerned for you, my client, because I know you're really hard up and I know you need to strip everything yeah. back. And my sort of mum need comes in to how can I help? How can I, you know, your primary concern here is cost and I want to help that, right? Mm -hmm. And then I think of it as a more left brain response is, I don't care how, uh, how your primary concern is cost, it's the wrong primary concern. The requirement is this, yeah. and if you hinder it with your what you think your primary concern is, you're buying something not fit for, for purpose. Yeah. And and I think I'm probably 50-50 left and right, and that's my competing interest in uh, uh, and the kind of self-talk that happens a lot when I'm looking at issues like this yeah. uh, in my day-to-day -day life. What do you what do you do there? Well, there's a great analogy which I always use, which is the uh, um, generally speaking. I mean, it's going back to my uh, my formative years as an account exec. Typically, you'd be sitting at a at a table talking to a talking to a client, and when that subject comes up, you know, if there was a coaster on the table, I thought, right, great, I've got all my props. She'd say, right, this table represents the risks that you that your business and you face. The coaster, that's the premium. Do you want to spend all the time talking about the size of the coaster or do you want to face the or deal with the actual problem, which is the table? You know, it's kind of and that's the analogy you've got to get across. It's all very well focusing on the coaster, but actually, mm. you know, why would you focus on the coaster if you haven't sorted out the table? I like it, like it a lot. But fundamentally, people don't care about insurance and that's our fault. So if we can't get people emotionally invested in what we're doing, then they do just think whatever's cheaper. And, you know, I think yeah. some of that is because we haven't really got into that um, description as, as you would do over the, the desk with them. You'd be sat human to human going, like you're yeah. talking about life insurance. You're talking about how, what do you want for your children if you're not around to be able to provide those things for your children? That's, you know, that is a, a very deep conversation to be having with somebody. And yet somebody will buy a life insurance policy online just as a kind of, oh, I need this. I better grab that 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 policy in. And until we learn how to 
evolve the product so that we can really get people to understand what they're buying in a digital world as well as face-to-face. And, you know, we move our advertising and engagement to do that. We're going to constantly butt up against this. It's this thing that you don't care about. The the, the reality is they don't care about the desk in in your description because they're not seeing it through that lens. They're just seeing it as a grudge purchase. I've got to spend this amount of money and I just want to get rid of it. So I think one of the big... There's a whole education piece, isn't there? Yeah. It's, sure? it's a, yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I was talking to somebody yesterday about the um, the fact that you know, we are still well. My 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 youngest is uh, um, doing her GCSEs um, shortly, and she was showing me her maths paper, which is utterly beyond me in every respect. Um, and I'm thinking, God, she's you know able to solve these really really complicated equations, but no one has ever spoken at 16 years of age. No one's ever spoken to her at school about mortgages, credit cards, insurance debt, life insurance, you know, all those life skills. And it's it, it, it's just an assumption that people will somehow know this stuff by the time they need it. And I think one of the one of the big downsides of the following the retail distribution review, however many years ago it was, it's this, this huge reduction in financial advisors who, you know, all right, they, 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 they got themselves a bad reputation for some slightly shady behavior around pensions and endowments, but they performed an incredibly valuable service actually talking to customers you know in that face-to-face way and actually sitting down with them and saying look what would you do what what do you want to provide for your children if uh, if anything were to happen to you no one's doing that anymore and particularly with the cost of living crisis i mean whoever you know what hard-working person comes home from work at the end of the day and thinks oh i must just go online and see whether i can spend some money on some life insurance i mean said literally nobody ever you know <laughs> yeah. it's kind of that's that's a real problem I I think the way around the communication and the education piece is um, is stories. So um, I was talking to somebody for BeaverPod recently about, um, we all talk about the need to get insurance understood to insurance people. Mm -hmm. And it's in all of the insurance uh, magazines and on insurance. If you're not in insurance, why would you read them? So what can we do outside of insurance to talk about this kind of stuff and my um my personal experience is um i I think all of you know and probably most of the world does i had a stroke in january last year um and i had critical life insurance now that was a game changer for us absolute game changer um so now i will talk to anybody about why this is something you absolutely should do not life insurance critical uh, illness insurance because it made a huge difference we had a joint insurance policy uh which is now null and void so my for the last year i've been saying to my husband come on you need i now can't get this insurance you need to do it but even though he has personal experience of it he's still dragging his heels so um I, i just think it's about outside of the insurance industry and it's about the uh right brain stories that connect with people that need to be need to be being put out there and it's such a problem, isn't it? Because, of course, you know, no journalist, if you phone up a journalist and say, would you like to write a story about an insurance policy that responds appropriately to a claim? It's like, no, <laughs> that's, a, that's but, not <laughs> But in the words of Ola Jacobs, who, um, who uh, I interviewed for BeaverPod, he said, if somebody says, what do I do? He does not use the word insurance. 
he just doesn't use it. So it's all back to what you were saying earlier, Sam, about communication. And it's about what I know what your barriers will be. And I know your reaction to this word. So I'm going to use something else so that I can reach you wherever you are to get you to understand that. And that that's the right brain stuff that I think we need more of. And and how we teach that skill, uh, I have no clue. But think like you, uh, Pete, because my kid's in year nine, that it should be taught at that age. Yeah. Those kind of human emotive understanding skills should be brought in much, much younger, as yeah. well as the life stuff. Yeah, I think, I think we all agree with that. We had some conversations with some civil servants at the Department for Education who are telling us that not only is it the financial sector that beats a part of their door, but so do the, the nutritionalists, so do the physical educationalists. There's a whole raft of people who want to put their subject onto the school agenda. Um, so if we, we have to find ways, ways, of, ways around that. I mean, for, there are a number of brokers now speaking to careers officers at schools and using them as a conduit to get to some of the, the fifth formers and the sixth formers as, to use old money that Pete and I would recognise. Um, that's, so that's, speak that, for yourself, that, Steve. I, I'm glad I was excluded. <laughs> that's chivalry for you, Pete. I left me off. Tell you what. <laughs> and me, and I'm grateful. So, so then, there may, there, may be, there may be different routes around it. And to go back to the, um, the practical examples, I don't think practical examples of insurance policies paying out on claims is a good one. But, that, but some of the access to insurance case studies that we've used. So Bob Harris, for example, who had an aortic dissection, couldn't get insurance off his own bat by ringing around. So he used our find insurance service. We put him onto a, a travel medical specialist and got and got the cover. It's those sorts of stories that the um, the wider press like. Mm -hmm. it, it, it does add flavour. It's it is, as Sam said, it's the, it's the right brain connection that, uh, that they like. I was just going to say with the kids, if we want to get them excited about insurance, talking about it at, at an ideological way, to talk about the fact that fundamentally insurance is a group of people all putting in so that if one of them gets into trouble, they'll, they'll scoop them out. That there's more to how we connect them to, to us as an industry. And I think if we go out and we do school fairs and we talk about the practicalities of insurance, we'll lose them. If we talk about the ideology of insurance, I think people like I, I had a conversation with somebody the other day who's working in the charity segment um, for a shared health um, platform doing incredible things. And when I explained what parametric insurance was and how it could potentially work for her with what she was trying to achieve, she was like, oh, my God, I didn't realize that you could do that. And I think getting people excited about what you can do with insurance is, is, is really important. I'm going to shut up now, Stephen. I'm going to do that because of my bounce back. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, like, I like the old CII approach. And again, when they go into colleges and universities, they use the word risk. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a, a, a more um, right brain word than talking about just insurance. And, and then you describe all the, all the things that, you need insurance for it's not just obviously cars and pets and houses it's absolutely everything you see you see around you and a lot of stuff that you don't see around you that's the sort of stuff that can energize the next generation i think and i think look there's a there's also look we're um we're spending a lot of time effort and money on 
some of the some of the bigger challenges around the world, you know, the, the, the climate challenge and sustainability, and actually getting properly involved in some you know, truly groundbreaking, game changing activities. I think that then it just sets you apart as a company. You're not just I think there's a there's a reputational challenge with insurance that it's seen as you know, self-serving, a nasty industry that doesn't always pay out, lets people down, relies on small print, all those horrible things. So you kind of, you know, we need to counter that with some really genuine good behaviour, you know, helping companies ensure the transition, making sure that we are actually putting our money where our mouth is and actually going for, you know, net zero and actually really genuinely doing things that are beneficial for society and shouting about it and actually being proud of it. But I think there's two elements to that. I think the national and international media industry needs to take this on because we can shout about it, but I would guess, maybe I'm wrong, but if I was to look through all of our LinkedIn profiles, it's going to be 80% insurance. What we need is we need that right brain story with the left brain message to be promoted across the media industry so it connects with people on on a... on a right brain level and gets people interested. What I'm just having a quick look at is we've got a few people in the audience. If anybody has any questions that they want to ask, please do put them in the chat. Now, I wanted to ask a question. Oh, before I do, I'm going to let Mark go. Should underwriters engage more with the right brain, need to ensure risks supporting clients, brokers, rather than the left brain, actuarial assumptions, rate increases? Great question, Mark. Thank you. Big time, yeah. Look, I couldn't, couldn't. That's that's a really, really good point. Insurance is all about pooling of risk, and I think the last few years, one of the big downsides of the the level of data that's now available to everyone is, I think there's a, there's a tendency for underwriters to basically try and cherry pick their way to glory, you know, to actually just find the risks that are highly unlikely to ever make a claim, and try to insure all of those. And just, you know, anything that's likely to have a claim, well, let's not get involved with that because that's going to have a claim. And which is kind of, that's the opposite of what insurance is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be pooling everything together so that when anything does go wrong, you know, there's, there's money in the pot to pay for it. And and it's I think it's impossible to actually use historical data to accurately predict the future. You know, if all these actuaries were all so clever, well, they'd have seen the pandemic coming. They'd have seen all the, yeah, they'd have seen the Ukraine war coming. They'd have seen all the other things that go wrong, weather events. They'd know about that. Oh, hang on. No, they didn't see any of that coming, did they? It's kind of so demonstrably, they can't predict the future. And actually, yeah, insurance should be about, right, you know, collectively finding a big enough pool of customers that will pay a sensible premium so that one or other of those customers has a loss. They're going to be protected. That's right brain thinking, to my mind. Yeah, Pete, you're right. We, we, we flagged a while ago that the danger of the use of big data was that cherry picking. Mm. Cherry picking the good ones will create a pool of those that can't get insurance. And that pool who can't get insurance will complain to their MPs. The, the politicians will pick it up and we'll have the, the mother of all problems. So yeah. uh, let, let's stick to mutualization, which is why insurance has lasted so many hundreds of years. Yeah. But it's also about what you insure. Yeah, I I think that the thing is with underwriting and and the thing that I find, I mean, me as somebody who wasn't in insurance and came in, there's certain things that my dark sense of humour finds highly amusing and actuaries are one of them. 
because I've never met a group of people that are all so absolutely categoric that they're 100% right 100% of the time and argue with each other all the time. You put two actuaries in a room, so like um, two actuaries in the room, they will both have completely different picks on what the number is. They will both be 100% categoric that they're right and the other one's an idiot. And I am just like, how can you not step back out of this situation and see how ludicrous it is? It's like religious fervour, isn't it? It it absolutely is. It's like religion. (laughs) But it's it's also the gap between the two a lot of the time is so big, it makes nonsense of the whole thing. And I'm not saying, of course, you can look at numbers and make assumptions and predictions and all of those, those things, but it has to be tempered with some common sense. And sometimes I see a complete lack of that in the way that they evaluate. And because if you say, I'm only gonna do something if I have the numbers to support it, the problem you have is that you end up with no innovation and you're not covering for the things that people need. So we're, we're currently designing a domestic abuse insurance, which doesn't exist today. And what we wanted to do was create an insurance that we could embed in our motor policy that if, people were a victim of domestic abuse, they could get access to funds. And you go, well, why Why would you do that? And, you know, where's the business case for it? And our, our thing is, our product is about supporting women and the most vulnerable women are, women are more victim of domestic abuse than men are. So this is something that we want to provide support for. There is data that you can use to build actuarial models and make sure that you've got enough money in the pot to make it make sense. But if we were just looking at it from a perspective of where's the numbers from previous businesses that support this, there'd be nothing there. And and, and that's where I think if we can combine those two areas and really start to open up the possibilities of insurance, we'll have a ton of people just desperately trying to get involved in the industry because that's that's exciting. And that's what insurance was always about, isn't it? I mean, it's... uh... What's, there's a great expression which I love, which is uh, history is just a series of events that no one saw coming, and it's kind of it's just it's it, and it's just so true, you know. And we we have to it's it's all about pooling of risk so that actually we can be there for people. So talking about uh, new innovation, uh, talking about the left brain, right brain, I've got a last uh, topic slash question for you both. Which side of the brain? is better at taking, excuse my French, fuck-ups. So we were talking beforehand about you make a massive screw-up, how you then deal with that. And and I think, uh, from my experience in my world, that the right brain is less equipped to deal with that than the left brain. Uh, and is that a reason that we've, you know, our industries and, and the world has grown up in a certain way? Discuss. I mean, it's interesting. I think when uh, when um, we were saying beforehand that when people make a big mistake, you know, it does. I know it's an old it's an old sort of cliche, but it does make them stronger. And actually, I think there's some of the most fragile people around are those that have had nothing but success, success after success after success. When anything does come and you know kick them somewhere, it's a um, it can, it can be really really tough to deal with. Whereas actually, some of the most resilient people. Um, yeah, you know, and when you look at some of the Paralympians and so on, yeah, incredibly resilient people who've had horrible things happen to them, and and yet they're some of the happiest people around because they've had challenges, because they've had issues, 
And that's absolutely right, brain thinking. Yeah. We will always try and avoid pain. That's a human nature. And the interesting thing about the left brain and how it shows up in insurance is this idea, and I'll go back to that actuarial piece, that if I have enough information, I'll be able to guarantee that I don't fail. That's the, that's what the left brain thinks. So to your point, Sarah, in terms of it coping with it, it doesn't believe that actually the failure is an option. Because if I've got all of this information, I won't fail because I have all of this information. And, and what I see is that nervousness that shows up. And we were talking before about entrepreneurship versus corporate thinking in the insurance world. Because we manage risk, there's a real fear of failure because failure is, is you know, I haven't done my numbers properly if I fail. The only way to get through that is to actually have to deal with the emotional impact of failure, which, yes, sits in the right brain. But the more times you you push it through that, I tried that thing, it didn't work, it hurt a bit, my ego got bruised, I wasn't quite where I thought I, I, I was going to end up, then actually the more information you get, the, the, the stronger the proposition becomes and the more you are able to push out and deliver something truly exceptional in in my mind steve yeah i would i would i would agree with that i think, I think the left brain can recognize it and analyze it but the right brain will help you get over it in, oh, I love in a way that. That perhaps the left brain can't i love that there's a there's a book just to, to finish on um something that speaks to this topic there's a book by victor franco i don't know if you know who he is he was a um a psychologist in Auschwitz and he's written a book called Man's Search for Meaning and this is to Pete's point and he was talking about um, people that haven't experienced hardship are less able to so we're talking about resilience and what he uses the term existential boredom and uh, and what he's talking about is uh, when you haven't got anything really hard hitting you in the face you make things and there's a brilliant study that he talks about about um, mice so there was a, some mice put in a, um, a utopian um, life. So they were given exactly the right food, the right space, the right heat, the right everything to live this wonderful utopian lifestyle. And they started fighting. And that just is what he's talking about in terms of existential boredom. So, so I think it's really interesting. And I love the point of uh, how the left brain and right brain can work together uh, in in um, circumstances where there's some pretty crap stuff happening. So um, so I'm really, really grateful to you all for, for this conversation. I don't know if there's anything you guys would like to add before we kind of sign off. No, it was, lovely. It was really, really great to speak to you, Sarah, and thanks. Uh, great to see you, Sam and Steve. And you, Pete and Sam. And well done again, Sarah, on the 100th episode. Yes, congratulations. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you. Uh, have a wonderful rest of week. Um, if anybody's got any questions they want to send to me, I'm sure we can get something sent out to you uh, from any of our wonderful guests. And um, just left to say thank you. Have a wonderful Easter in a few weeks' time. Uh, and uh, I'll hopefully speak to you all soon. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening to the Insurance Brokers Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to subscribe on your chosen podcast streaming platform and check us out on YouTube.